That's what it's all about. That's why we're here today is because he gave his life for mine. If you have a Bible this morning, turn to the book of Revelation, chapter number 5. And if you don't, don't sweat it. I'm going to read the verses anyway. Revelation chapter number 5, I'm going to read a text verse, and then I want to share you with you today an amazing blessing, a blessing of a group of folks called the redeemed, and I trust by the time that we're finished, your heart will be encouraged as well. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9 reads, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by, the blood out of, by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. It's going to be a time the likes of which you and I cannot begin to imagine. It will be an exciting time, a blessed time, a time of believers standing before our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, all together singing a song of glory to Him where He receives all of the honor. But what caught my attention was this time. As I looked at this verse, I realized when I looked around in this massive group of folks, now addressing the Lord Jesus Christ with our praise, I'm going to be blown away with the people I see in that group. It's going to be incredible. It says here, Thou hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. Notice, out of every kindred and tongue and people and a nation. Today, I want to bring a message on the family of the redeemed. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, thank you for your love and your blessing, your faithfulness. Thank you for this incredible opportunity to meet together and to preach your word. Dear Lord Jesus, hide me behind the cross. Lord, may the words that I speak be true to your word. Guide me, I pray, and speak to each heart. Thank you for what you're going to do, for we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. In our text verse... It says, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Every. I looked it up just to make sure it means every. <laughs> every one. It means not missing any. Every one. And then it lists four different groups, the kindred, tongue, people, and nation. It's as if he wants us to understand that it is everybody, not missing anybody. There's going to be folks from every kindred. Now, this word kindred means tribe or clan. It's interesting that it uses this particular word because that's a reference to the tribe of Israel. Israel had 12 tribes, if you will, broken down to the various groups there. One might say, I'm from the tribe of Judah, or I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. And within each tribe, they would have their marriages, they would have families within each tribe. Remember the Hatfields and the McCoys? 
there were a couple of clans there that didn't tend to get along very well. But they were all grouped together as large families. The word tongue obviously means language. From every tongue, it says, there's going to be folks there, hallelujah, that speak English. And perhaps I'll understand them. There'll be folks speaking French and, and Swahili and all these different languages there. Folks from every different language group. Oh, how I'm grateful that we support missionaries and those that translate God's Word into the various languages. Babel divided the world into language groupings. The world is loosely subdivided by languages. Why is it that you are here in this grouping this morning and not in a church that all speaks German? Now, there will be some of you that could understand that. I would be very polite and try to say an amen once in a while, but I wouldn't have a clue what they were saying. We came together here because we understand, hopefully, understand English. We gather together in areas and subdivisions, in small groups and cities because of our language. Each person, I'm told, has a heart language. Now, perhaps you have different languages you can speak. I took two years of Spanish, and I can say Spanish words like burrito and taco after my two years of Spanish, but that's about all that I got. I studied Greek, in, 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 uh, and I studied Latin. I studied other languages. Not that I can speak fluently in them, but I studied this language. But I tell you one thing for sure. If you want to hit home with me and affect me emotionally, don't talk to me in Spanish. It needs to be English. Adversely, that's why our missionaries spend so much time learning a particular language. Now, perhaps that person they're talking to can speak English as well, but their native language is this other language. We've learned that if you're going to reach their heart, you have to speak their native heart language. And God says there's going to be all the various heart languages represented before the Lamb. He mentions people. Every people. Now, I think what he means here is just groups of disassociated people groups. I think of New York City. In New York City, it is a hodgepodge, a melting pot of all kinds of different people, all crammed together in this massive city or a people. People identify themselves as, I'm from New York City, New York City. And they may speak all the different languages, but they're all from the family of New York City. And then lastly is nation. Of course, we understand pretty well what he's talking about when he says nation, but this is, this is a Gentile or foreign people. This is more of a national grouping. The Olympics picture this as they come from all the various different nations holding their flag representing their country, nation. So the redeemed will come with many differences, many different languages. They're going to be different colored skin. They're going to be many differences as they stand before the Lord. So, if we are going to be in this massive group, all offering praise to our Savior, and we're going to be in this environment forever, I think it's going to be important 
that we learn to love each other. If we're going to be with them forever, <laughs> it's going to be a long forever if we can't put up with them. Know what I'm saying? I read about a story of an unlikely helper. Most of you will recognize this story when I get into it. In Luke chapter 10, beginning of verse 30, And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there come down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Now implied here, this was a Jewish man heading from Jerusalem to Jericho. And it was notorious for thieves along that route. On the way, he got beaten up and robbed, leaving him half dead. A Jewish priest happened by. But the Jewish priest went on the other side of the road so he wouldn't have to be bothered by this distraction. A Jewish Levite did the same thing. Both men looked at the man and walked away, leaving him on his own to suffer. Gratefully, a third man happened along. This man was a foreigner. In fact, he was from that despised region of Samaria. All the Jews looked down on those Samaritans. In fact, they called them dogs. They looked down on the group of half-breed Jews. They weren't real Jews like we are, they said. They're a bunch of hodgepodge of mixed races. But this Samaritan did the unthinkable. He saved the man's life and provided all he needed for his recovery. The Samaritan is a beautiful picture of how we are supposed to be to all those different than we are. I see an unexpected conversation in John chapter 4 and verse 5. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria. This is Jesus. And it says, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there, Jesus therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Well, there cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away to the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldst have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Jesus travels, took him through the despised region of Samaria. Instead of purposing, like the priest and Levi, to ignore the people there, Jesus lovingly drew one of them into conversation. He didn't walk around and say, oh, there's one of those Samaritans. There's one of those half-breeds. I don't want to get soiled or dirtied by them, so I'm going to go to a different well. No, that's not what Jesus did. 
he drew himself into a conversation with her. And he testified to her that he was the Messiah. In verse 27, And upon this came his disciples, and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? His disciples couldn't believe what they were seeing. Here's Jesus, their master, talking to a Samaritan. Doesn't he know who she is? Doesn't he know she's from Samaria? After all, not only is she half-breed, she's a woman. She's a woman. There. Now, that might not mean a whole lot to us today, but in that day, in that day, in that culture, the men just did not typically speak down to women. Sadly, they did not look at them on equal par. And here the disciples came back and they found him talking to this Samaritan and a woman. And they marveled at this. In John 4, 28, the woman left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, Come see a man which told me all things ever I did. Is not this the Christ, the Messiah? And many of those Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified, He told me all that ever I did. Understand this, this woman that was despised, this woman that was looked down upon by all the other Jews, when Jesus entered into a conversation with her and he presented to her himself as the Messiah, she became an amazing evangelist for him, testifying to all of her friends in her city, I have found the one that is called the Christ, the Messiah. Someone who was so despised by the religious community did more for the Lord than most of them ever would. I've had a few different encounters in my time. I grew up in a lily-white town in southeast Nebraska. They don't get any whiter than that town. It was many, many years ago, obviously, and, and we were in the very middle of the, of the country, and I had never seen a black man before. Never seen one. I'm in elementary school, and I had never seen a black man before. I was in the back seat of my car, and we're driving down Main Street. Understand, in this town, Main Street was about a black and a half long. So, and I saw this man that was black walking on the street, and I gawked at him. And I looked. I'd never seen this before. And I said, Mom, look! Mom, look! I'd never seen such a thing before. I couldn't imagine. I couldn't imagine how difficult it was for that family. You see, as I started growing up, and of course, no longer was a novelty, because I started having friends that were black and started you know, understanding, but in that young age, I could not begin to imagine how much difficulty they must have had trying to fit in an all-white community, until I went to Bible college. One of my extensions was for me to go to a black church. And so I got to go to a black church. And at a black church, I got to uh, help, in, help serve the church. And I was, first of all, I'd never been to a black church before. And they're not all the same, just like Baptist church are not all the same. But this particular church had one of the most amazing choirs in it. It was spectacular. And I was mesmerized by the choir. 
So I'm sitting there, and how the choir's swaying back and forth, and they had the most incredible sound and just enjoying it. They were really praising God and just really get into it. And then the preacher got up, and the preacher preached in a different way that I'd ever heard before. I'd never heard him preach like that. But man, was he fiery for God. He just really went to town. He, he shelled the corn when it came to preaching. It was great. It was awesome. But I looked around, and I realized I was the only white person I could see in that building. And I felt a little out of place. I felt a little out of place. Then it hit me, that's how they must have felt when I saw them back in that town as elementary students. Differences. differences. And how are we supposed to respond to differences? Now, the simple truth is there's not a one person in this room that is alike to anybody else. We're all different. We're all different. We've all got different backgrounds. We all look different some more different than others. We talk differently. We, we, have, we have a different combination in our backgrounds, uh, uh, where we've been, all the life's experiences make us all completely different from each other. The point is, we had better hurry up and learn to get along and love each other. I don't care the background. I don't care the personality. I don't care the race. We need to learn to love one another. Why? Because there's going to come a time for all eternity, we are going to be in this massive group called the redeemed, and we're going to be loving Christ, praising Him, looking around, and seeing people that don't look like us. All loving the same Jesus Christ, and it's going to be a blessed time. And so I'd say, let's start learning to love each other. God desperately wants everybody to get saved. Every color of skin from every language. In 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, wordness, and not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There is no one that God says, Oh, boy, I shouldn't like him. I shouldn't like her. I'm not going to let them get saved. No, He says, He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 1 Timothy 2.3, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come under the knowledge of the truth. God's will. You say, I sure don't know what God's will is. Well, I can tell it to you. I know God's will. God's will is that all people come to know Him as their personal Savior. That's the will of God. God's will is we need to get saved. Now, are we all going to get saved? No, because He gave us a free will to choose or not choose. But here, God's will is for us to get saved. Why? Because God is a loving God. He loved us so much, He sent His Son to die for us. Love, I can't even begin to get my head around. And God is merciful to the very end. This is amazing. In Revelation 14, 6, here we are in the tribulation. And one of the last things that goes on in the tribulation is God sends an angel. God sends an angel. Now, I don't understand exactly how this is going to be. The Bible doesn't describe exactly. But here's what it says in Revelation 14, 6. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth. Notice, to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. In some way that we're not described here, it's called an angel flying. There will be a, a, a spreading of the gospel in such a way that every people group hear it at the end of the tribulation so they can have one more chance to get saved. Why? Because God is not willing that any should perish. He is merciful to the end. Oh, but Pastor Edward, you don't know my story. 
You don't know what I've done. You don't know how wicked or sinful I've been. God could never forgive me. Are you kidding? Jesus died on the cross to pay for the sins of all mankind, including yours. He already paid for it. It's already a done deal. Oh, but there's some wicked people out there. There's some wicked people in history. Surely Jesus' blood was not sufficient for them. Oh, my. Oh, my. That's what differentiates our Savior from every other God. Not only did he die on the cross, was buried, and three days later rose again, but his blood was sufficient to pay for the sins of all mankind. I'm not a big proponent of Adolf Hitler. In all likelihood, though I don't know his heart, in all likelihood, he's burning in hell forever. But do you know that God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to pay for his sins as well? Such love. The gospel will be preached to all people during the tribulation. Next, the redeemed are going to have all the exterior differences taken away. Here's what I mean by that. We're not going to change skin color when we get to heaven. We're not going to change our facial features because the Bible says we're going to know even as we are known. But now, when you came in today, most of us are dressed differently. Some of us have nice jewelry on. Some of us have nice expensive clothes on. Some have perhaps expensive shoes on. But you know what's the amazing thing in heaven, this, this group of redeemed? We're already told what we're going to wear. <laughs> we don't have to spend all the time in the, in the world, as we oftentimes do, getting ready for church. Oh, I have nothing to wear. What am I going to wear this morning? Oh, man, I have nothing to wear. Uh, don't have to worry about it, because the Bible already says what we're going to wear. This is so amazing. First of all, Revelation 3, 4, and 5, Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. White raiment. Well, here we're told what we're going to wear. It's going to be white. Clothing's going to be white. Why? Representing the purity and holiness of Jesus Christ. This likely refers the overcomers, to those who are actually saved and wearing righteous robes of Christ. However, the principle here will apply to those who rise above the temptations of the world and live righteous, Christ-honoring lives in spite of the nasty, sinful world around them. Overcomers are going to wear white garments. Revelation 6, 9, And when he had opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Verse 11 says, And white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. White robes given to whom? These are martyrs. These are those that died during the tribulation for their faith. You're a Christian? And they killed them. They died for their faith. And when they get to heaven, the Bible says God's going to give them white robes to wear. So overcomers wearing white clothing, the tribulation saints who died will, will, will be clothed with here. Revelation 7, 13, And one of the elders answered and said unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? 
And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are those not necessarily dying, being persecuted, and murdered. These are those that came out of the great tribulation during that time. And what are they wearing? White robes. And then in Revelation 7, 9, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne. This is us, you and me. Believers in Jesus Christ before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hand. We're going to stand before the Lord clothed in white robes, representing the purity and the holiness of Jesus Christ. You see, there will be no class system in heaven. There will be no poor section in heaven. <laughs> there won't exist. The rich folks won't be looking down their noses at the poor. The poor won't be cowering in the back, unsure of where to sit. There's gonna, not going to be any sections of expensive gold watches or no expensive jewelry. We're going to all wear the same thing. All white robes of righteousness. His righteousness. Years ago, before I came out here as assistant pastor, and uh, we've gone through numbers of cars, and not all of our cars have been really nice cars. Some of them have been old beaters. I would frequently be asked to do funerals and perform, officiate a, a funeral service. But if I wasn't, my, our senior pastor might be, and frequently he would ask me to go along with him and, uh, and, and, and uh, be a part of the service in, in the graveside. And oftentimes call me up, have me lead a song as we're standing around the graveside. On this particular funeral, <coughs> uh, he got in the front car with the, uh, with the funeral director and they took off and the casket followed them. And all the cars line up behind them. And, and my car got in line behind them and following a beautiful, beautiful new Cadillac. It was gorgeous. Beautiful. I had a nice car behind me. I don't remember what it was, but a nice car behind me. And here, my muffler's falling off. <laughs> and you ever been in a car where the muffler's falling off? And, and, and it's already louder, just to run louder. And every time you give it a little bit of gas, it sounds like a <laughs> just real big car, real loud. And so, so besides the doors looking, they're kind of falling off and, and rust all over. I've, I've got this loud car, and I'm trying my best just to feather it a little bit, just to give it just enough gas to make it go forward. But every time I touched it, I, everybody's looking at me and oh, feeling so miserably. Finally, I've got to turn the car off and get out and put my head down and walk over the graveside and stand there. <laughs> felt really embarrassed about it. You know there's not going to be any embarrassment when we stand there before the Lord Jesus, shoulder to shoulder with the other redeemed, all people of various walks and lives, backgrounds and nationalities, there's not going to be an embarrassment as we stand next to each other, feeling lesser than anyone else. We're going to be so focused on praising our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> Lastly, the redeemed will all share in what the Bible calls his visitation. His visitation. In Luke 1, verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. Well, here we're introduced to the word redeemed. And this is really what got me excited, was my study of the word redeemed. 
The word redeemed here, literally translated, means to ransom. In Luke 7, 14 and following, and he came and touched the bier, the casket, and they that bear him stood still. This is Jesus. He was in a funeral procession. He walked up to the casket. And he said, young man, I say unto thee, arise. The young man was the dead person in the casket. <laughs> and he that was dead sat up and began to speak. And he delivered him to his mother. And there came a fear on all. I would think so. And they glorified God, saying that a great prophet is risen up among us, and that God hath visited his people. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was in a funeral processional, and all of a sudden, the dead person sits up, I'd be a little nervous too, a little fearful, wondering what in the world's going on. That's exactly what happened on that day. And collectively, they said, God hath visited us. God is here. God himself came and dwelt with man in the form of Emmanuel, God with us. God went to the cross and willingly offered his life so that fallen man could be redeemed, or the word here is ransomed. He hath visited and, secondly, redeemed his people. God's people were ransomed by God. God ransomed, uh, Jesus ransomed us on the cross. In 1 Peter 1.18 it says, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The word redeemed here means ransom. Ransom. You weren't redeemed by silver and gold. You weren't paid off with money. No, what bought you, what paid for your sins, was the precious blood of the Lord Jesus. The word translated ransom from redeemed here is the one commonly employed as the price paid for a slave who is then set free by the one who bought him. The purchase money for releasing slavery or slaves is called a ransom. In Acts 20 and verse 28, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to, flee, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Ephesians 1, 7, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. The scope of this ransom is seen in Matthew 20, 28. Even as a son of man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And this is a phenomenal truth. Jesus Christ did not come to be pampered by the world. He came to give his life. Here as a ransom for many. The book of Matthew, recording this, his audience understood his meaning to be a ransom for all. Christ gave his life for all, not just a select few. Here, let me show you what I mean. In Romans 5 and verse 15, But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, many be dead, he uses the word here, many. If through the offense, or sin, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. Interesting. 
Anyway, the word here, many became dead because of sin. But in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, and it says, For in Adam all die. In Adam all die. Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. One man's sin entered into the world, and death by sin. For that all have sinned, Bible sin. Now, in, 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 this, in, this, in, in this verse, uh, it says many, ransom for many. Why? Because in that language, it's a language of comparisons. We're told, Jesus said, unless you hate your father and mother, unless you hate them and love me. Well, we re resist that. We, that. That's repulsive. How could that make sense that Jesus would tell us to hate our mother and father? Well, you've got to understand what that language means. The language is a language of comparisons. He said, unless the love for ha you have for me is so much greater than your love for them. You see, he doesn't want you to hate them. I mean, he wants the disparity between the two to seem like it's hate in comparison. Love me so much more. Here's a comparative illustration. In Romans 5.12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, spoken of as many men, in Matthew 20.28. 20, Number two, Christ rescued us from the curse of the law. Galatians 3.13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. This is quoted from Deuteronomy 21.23. He rescued us. He redeemed us. This definition of this word, redeemed, is to buy up or to rescue from loss. In Deuteronomy 7.25, we see that we're under a curse. The graven images of their gods shall be, shalt thou burn with fire. Thou shalt not desire the silver or gold that is on them, nor take it unto thee, lest thou be snared therein. For it is an abomination of the Lord thy God. Neither shalt thou bring an abomination into thine house, lest thou be a cursed thing like it. But thou shalt utterly detest it, and thou shalt utterly abhor it, for it is a cursed thing. Because of sin before God, we are all cursed. Because of sin, because sin passed upon all men, all men are cursed before God. We were abominable and detestable because there is no sin in heaven. There's no good in us and certainly nothing worth redeeming. Christ, however, in his love rescued us from our cursed state. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Revelation 5, 9, once again, and they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hath redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. This is the group from which we were redeemed. Out of, out of every kindred 
and tongue and people and nation. The word redeem here literally means to go to the market or a public gathering to purchase or redeem in that setting. We get the English word agoraphobia from this word, meaning a fear of crowds. Jesus went into the crowds. And Jesus took us out of the crowds and redeemed us to himself. Jesus Christ came to fallen humanity to purchase us to himself. In John 1, 4, and 5, And him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Jesus came into a world of darkness, sin. And he came looking for the lost to save them. And Luke 19, 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And he came from heaven out of love. 1 John 4, 9 and 10, In this was manifest, made known, open to all, the love of God toward us. Because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him, Herein is love. It's as, if, it's as if the Bible says, you wonder what love is? We hear all sorts of people talk about love, 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 but do you want to know what God says love is? Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the covering for our sins. There's coming a day Sometime in the future, I don't think it's going to be long. For all the redeemed, those who have been rescued, those who have been ransomed, will gather together in this enormous mass gathering. We will all be clothed in white robes. We will be facing the Lord Jesus Christ. We will be glorifying Him as one collective body. There's only one requirement. It's not good works. Because not a person in that group ever was good enough to be in that group. Not one. It's not wealth. We already heard about that. It's not the number of times they visited church or the amount of offerings they placed in the offering plate. Everyone in that group is there because they recognized that they were sinners. There's no sin in heaven. And they recognized they, in their own strength, could never deserve heaven, but they understood that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for their sins. And they came to Jesus by faith. They confessed their sinful condition, and they trusted Him and Him alone to forgive them and to save them. That decision put them in this mass gathering of the redeemed. So I have to ask, right before I pray, will you be there? Yes. I was 11 years old, and I knelt down next to my dad, and I prayed a very simple prayer of faith, calling upon the Lord to forgive me and to save me. When I die, I'll be a part of that group. Not because I'm a good person. Oh, the things I've done. Not because I've lived sinless. But it's because 
I put my faith and trust in the one who chose to ransom me, to redeem me, to purchase the price for my sin. If you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you can today. It's not a good work. It's not anything but you choosing to believe in him. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Here we are, Lord Jesus, reveling in this amazing truth of your redemption. We are so unworthy of your love. We don't deserve your presence here today, but thank you for it. Thank you for reaching down to us and working in our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that you will be glorified even in this moment. I thank you for saving me at 11 years old. I was so unworthy. But thank you for securing a place for me and preparing a white robe of righteousness for me. So many others in this room have the same testimony, but they're going to be a part of that group as well because they've come to you by faith and they've trusted in your salvation. And so I'm going to ask with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, do you personally know when you die that you're going to go to heaven? Is that your testimony? Or do you have to say like so many, I don't know for sure that heaven is my home, but I sure want to. I sure want to. If you don't know for sure that when you die, you're going to go to heaven, I sure like to pray for you. Oh, I would never embarrass you. I'd never call your name out, but I'd like to pray for you. Is there anyone here this morning say, Pastor, would you pray for me? I don't know for sure that heaven is my home, but I want to know. Please, would you pray? Simply lift your hand up so I can see it. Anyone like that? Pray for me. Thank you. Pray for me. I don't know for sure that heaven is my home, but I want to know. Thank you. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this time, and I thank you for the work that you've done in us. I thank you for meeting with us. I thank you for dying on the cross for us. I thank you for the incredible offering of the gift of salvation that you offer for us. And I pray, Lord, that you might help us to now live for you. I pray that you will go with us, and I pray, Lord, that you will continue to be glorified in our lives. Now, for that to occur, we are so dependent upon you working in us. And so help us to completely subject our lives to you. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.